0: The second week, we had a little bit of a hiatus as I was on vacation, but the second week in uh, what I hope will only be an eight-week study. Uh, Last time I was hoping it was only going to be a seven-week study, and we're growing uh, by leaps and bounds already. So we'll see if we can rein it in a little bit. Uh, Let me open in prayer, and then we're going to get started with our discussion today. Oh, gracious Lord and God, thank you for this day that you have given. This is the day that you have made. Help us to rejoice and be glad in it. Help us to rejoice all the more in you. Lord, help us as we come today to discuss worship and to think about worship. Help us even to begin to worship you here in the Sunday school class, and help us to be prepared to come into your presence and worship you today uh, together. Uh, We pray that you would work and move in our hearts. Help us uh, to be clear and understand what it is you require of us and call us to, in the way that you work by your spirit in the hearts of your people, uh, to help us to worship you. And so we pray, O oh Lord, make us worshipers, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're, we're going to start uh, today. I hope everybody got a, uh, a handout on the way in. If not, there are more back there. Uh, we're going to start with a little mental exercise. Uh, and it's mental in the sense that uh, you don't have to answer out loud. Uh, but a little game. Well, you can. not Yeah, 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 you can. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, a little game that I'm calling Worship or Idolatry. Uh, Several situations, uh, and you get to make the call and say, is this true worship, or is it false worship? Uh, And so some of these um, might be far off. Uh, Some others might be a little close to home. We'll see. I've only got a few of them, uh, and then we'll get into the actual discussion. So the first one, uh, somewhere uh, in some town in Spain, some little village, uh, the priests are holding a feast day celebration. Uh, It began with uh, two or three days of of fasting before the celebration and then moved into a processional through the streets of the town uh, where the priests are carrying a large wooden cross with an image of Jesus hanging on the cross and the villagers come out uh, gathering their collections for the feasts that will happen when they finally get to the church. Uh, they're coming out and kissing the feet of this statue and joining in the processional, and, and they're going to give thanks for someone who was martyred uh, in their village about a thousand years before. So, there's the situation. Worship or idolatry? Again, it's a mental exercise. You don't have to, uh, to answer out loud. All right, how about another situation? Uh, A young woman of, say, 16, uh, recently converted, Uh, she is learning to grow in spiritual disciplines. She is a member of a good, upstanding Protestant church, uh, and she's learning to read the Bible. She's learning to pray. She's learning what it is uh, to be involved in pouring out her heart to the Lord. And she heard someone say that a really good idea is to do prayer journaling. Uh, to write down your prayers, and so she does. She writes, in a sense, a prayer to the Lord, and then she gets an idea. Uh, It would be significant uh, if she were to take that prayer, that piece of paper that she's written on, uh, take it outside, maybe it's January, she takes it out into the snow, uh, and she lights it on fire. And she watches as the smoke rises to the heavens, and she feels that sort of warm tingly that the Lord has heard her prayer. Is it worship? Or is it idolatry? How about another one? It's Veterans Day weekend in another fine, upstanding Protestant church. Uh, And as a part of the celebration of Veterans Day, the uh, pastor and and the uh, elders or whoever it is is in charge of this church has invited all of the servicemen and women, all of the veterans of the church, uh, to dress in their military regalia uh, and to have a processional down the center aisle of the church during the worship service carrying in the American flag uh, to stand at the front and to be recognized for their service to the country uh, and to be applauded and to have a prayer of thanksgiving prayed over them. Is it worship or is it idolatry? One more. It is uh, the evening of December 24th, and you gather together uh, with your friends at church, uh, and you have a wonderful service where you speak of the incarnation of Christ uh, you hear a short homily, uh, not a long one, and everyone is happy for a short homily on December 24th. And then at the end, everyone receives a little candle, uh, and you stand in a circle, uh, and the light starts at the beginning, uh, and it passes candle to candle around the room as the, lights, the electric lights are turned off, and everyone remembers that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. And by the end, everybody's standing around singing Silent Night, by candlelight. Is that worship, or is it idolatry? Okay, Uh, so some of those uh, may be things that you have uh, been engaged in before. Others, you would immediately say, that is ridiculous. I would never be engaged in anything like that. But the question that we want to ask today is, how can we tell the difference, uh, and how do we decide what ought to be in worship and what ought not to be in worship? Last time, we were talking about worship and trying to define it a little bit, And what we came up with, sort of a, my little stab at defining worship, that worship is the whole person response of, of reverence and devotion to the Lord. Uh, and we spoke a lot last time about uh, the attitude of the heart and the way that it matches with the actions of the body. The things that you do uh, should match up with your sense of reverence for the Lord. Here's how uh, R.C. Sproul, I think, uh, defines it. In his little book, A Taste of Heaven, he says the very heart of worship, as the Bible makes clear, is the business of expressing from the depths of our spirits the highest possible honor we can offer before God. And you hear that same thing there. It's the business of expressing uh, from the depth of our spirit this sort of outward flow of the inward devotion and, and love for the Lord. And that's what worship shows up as. And that's all well and good. Uh, But if worship is merely uh, an outflow of the heart, uh, we need to deal with what our hearts sometimes want to do in worship uh, and what God might want us to do in worship. Uh, Can we not uh, simply worship God in any way that makes our hearts sing in his presence? Can't we do what makes us feel most connected to the Lord? So now, no longer a mental exercise, let me ask uh, the obvious question to you. Uh, but anybody who answers the obvious question has to follow up with maybe a not so obvious second question, okay? Does God care how we worship? And if so, or if not so, how do you know that? Where have you found it? Tim, you want to answer the obvious question? He cares how we worship. How do you know that? Everything he articulates in the Old Testament. In, okay, in the New Testament. Not trying to push it, but wanted to make sure we were reflecting what you were saying there. Everything in the Old and New Testament, so scripture, Tim would say, is full of God's concern for right worship. Anybody else? Does God care how we worship him? I thought we might get one from Rob. Go ahead. No? <laughs> well, that's telling you. Yeah. Um, the uh my point is that uh, he also is very explicit that merely following the formal rules is not sufficient. Apply this trampling my course. Mm-hmm. Who told you to come to all this stuff? Mm-hmm. God? Well, well God told you, actually, yeah, thank you. Okay. So just following
1: formal structures does not guarantee goodness. Uh, on the other hand, just having Jesus in your heart doesn't guarantee goodness either. Right,
0: um, right. But both are necessary. Okay. So you also would appeal to Scripture and say that uh, Scripture is clear, at least in that Isaiah passage that you've got there, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, that God cares very much how we worship, and he cares that it is an inward and an outward thing. Okay. Good. Anybody else? Yeah. Well, Teresa Okay. Yeah. hmm. Mm hmm. Sure, sure, sure. So, so whatever way you'd like, yes. as long as it follows what the Lord has prescribed, yes. is that okay? Uh, and you spoke of of God giving us examples of of righteous prayer, yes. ways to pray. Jesus taught his disciples when you pray, pray like this, yes. uh, and so He gives us, in a sense, a. a template we might say and sometimes we we repeat that prayer verbatim Uh, we do it every week Uh, other times pastors or or individuals will take that prayer and sort of pray through thematically Uh, and and God gives us examples in his word yeah great anybody else does God care how we worship him Uh, and if so or if not so how do you know that anybody else before we come back to Rob Ronnie, yeah, good, so keep going on that thought, yeah, so worship in spirit and truth, so what is Jesus saying there when he's talking to that Samaritan woman, what what do you think he's telling her about worship, what does he mean when he says spirit and truth? Yeah, so she was asking a question about where, uh, and quite frankly, uh, Terry Johnson uh, has a great take on that passage. He's a he's a pastor of a Presbyterian church. Interestingly, it's called Independent Presbyterian, which is something we'll get into some other time. Um, but yeah, but uh, he says, you know, that is one of the most revolutionary statements in the Bible, uh, because up until that time, it actually did matter where you worshipped. Uh, is is true. Worship, according to the Bible, um, in Jerusalem, where the sacrifices are made, uh, or, as Jesus says, is a day coming and is already here, an hour coming and is already here, when uh, true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. Yeah, yeah, so that's important. So, so both of those things, that inward and the outward, uh, but we would say Jesus affirms that, that the outward is also important, uh, that there's a truth element. Last one, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, when Jesus said that that he's
1: seeking those who were worshiping in spirit and truth, he was also, by uh, invocation, saying that uh, what happened taking place uh, was not happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, in in the language of Hebrews, we would almost talk about these things in terms of shadows and substance. Uh, That, yeah, this was real worship, but it was shadowy worship. There was a lot of uh, outward circumstance and ceremony and those things that were really pointing to greater realities. And here's Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman and saying, hey, uh, the greater reality is here. You're looking at him. Uh, And and so let's get rid of these these, uh, shadowy things. And look to the substance. Bill, did you want to add one more thing quickly before we move on?
1: Because
0: two sons who and, they were and they were to kill the, of the <laughs> And we'll talk about Nadab and Vihu. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's a wonderful example, another passage in the Old Testament uh, where we see God saying, uh, this is strange fire, it's unauthorized. Uh, and, uh, and so he uh, takes them to task and uh, ends up taking their lives in judgment. Uh, Derek Thomas uh, is a Welsh pastor. That means he uh, is subject uh, to Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II, uh, and he gave an illustration of a time when he had an occasion to write a letter to the Queen, and he found out in uh, writing that letter that there is a whole protocol uh, that goes into writing to the queen. And there is a proper way to do it and an improper way to do it. Uh, one of the proper things that you have to do is the way that you end your letter. Uh, if you are a subject to the crown, you close your letter by saying, I have the honor to be, madam, your majesty's humble and obedient servant. No, sincerely yours, uh, but that's how you, you sign it. There's a certain protocol. Uh, and for us Americans, we might say, well, that sounds an awful lot stuffy. Um, We don't like that sort of thing, but uh, right, 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 right. But but even this idea where we say, well, she's the queen, and so yeah, there there probably is a different way that you approach, and there there ought to be a certain protocol that you follow. And and even if you know, we talked last time about worship being a matter of of uh, our natures, uh, that we are not excused when we think, well, we don't have to worship this living God, because according to nature, we are aware that he is there, and we are inexcusable if we do not offer to him uh, true worship. And now we need him to reveal what that true worship is, but we, we know these things. And even by intuition, I think, we would say, well, if, if uh, earthly magistrates and, and people with power, there's some sort of protocol, much more so uh, ought there to be uh, in approaching the king of heaven. Uh, and, and we need to know, if we're going to approach him, what is the proper way to do so. Uh, and so uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Um, now, when Presbyterians talk about proper protocol for worship, we end up talking about what is called the regulative principle of worship. Anybody heard that term before? Has everybody heard that term before? Anybody not? Uh, now, this uh, can be something that is contentious. Uh, sometimes. Uh, There is a pretty vigorous debate, um, certainly between those who are Reformed and those who are non-Reformed, but there are even uh, vigorous debates within Reformed circles, people who say, well, I hold to the Westminster and this is what I believe and I like this uh, this doctrine, but I'm not crazy about this regulative principle thing because it sounds pretty restrictive. Uh, And so my goal today is to discuss the regulative principle in, in sort of two phases. First, just to define it, uh, because it, it's the way that Reformed churches throughout the years, and, and not just Reformed churches, but uh, historically Baptist churches, congregational churches, uh, have all had the same sort of idea as to what worship ought to be. There is a divide between, uh, say, Anglican and Lutheran churches, uh, and, and there's a, a bit of a debate there. But just to define what we mean when we talk about the regular principle of worship, how do we decide what this protocol ought to be, uh, and then we want to examine the proof for this. We want to walk through some scriptures. So first, we're going to look together at the Westminster. You're going to find that on the, uh, the handout that I gave you in the back. Uh, and then we're going to look at a few scriptures. Um, so we find it uh, a good definition uh, of the regulative principle there in chapter 21 Uh, of religious worship and the Sabbath day from the Westminster Confession. We looked at the first half of this first section last time uh, to try and define what worship is. Uh, But in the second half, there it begins, but the acceptable way. Uh, This is a pretty good summary of what we mean when we talk about the regulative principle of worship. Here's what it says. But the acceptable way of worship, uh, excuse me, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Three important words you need to see there in that little definition. The first one is instituted. When we talk about worship, we talk about something that the Lord has established. Not something that we have decided is a good idea. It's something that the Lord has commanded. And you can look all throughout Scripture, uh, the Lord calling his people to worship him. That's the way that we enter into worship every week. We have a scriptural call to worship. Very often where the Lord says uh, something to the effect of worship, calling his people into his presence, worshiping him in joy and gladness, in the splendor of holiness. That's the the front of our bulletin, and has been so for 20-some years. Uh, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That's a command, folks. Uh, Worship is instituted by God. It's his idea, uh, and it works according to his ends. If it's instituted by him, that means that we can't change the goal of worship. Sometimes there's some confusion on that. What's the purpose of worship? Well, maybe worship is evangelism. And if worship is evangelism, your worship is going to look a lot different if your main goal is to get non-believers to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there evangelism that happens in corporate worship? You bet. But is that the goal? Sometimes people think that the goal of worship is is just to make you feel a little bit better. You come in uh, dragging through life because of your sin, the things that you've uh, gone through this week, the struggles and the afflictions that you have, and you come to hear an encouraging word. Now, does encouragement happen in worship? Let's hope so. It ought to. We're coming into contact with realities of uh, of eternity and what God has done and who He is for His people. But is that the purpose of worship? No. The purpose of worship is to honor the Lord. It's instituted by Him. Worship is instituted by God for the purpose of honoring Him. And that means we ought to take great pains to come into worship in the way that the Lord has told us, because that's the way that we can worship and honor Him the best. Not according to what uh, suits our fancier or, or gives us warm, tingly feelings. That's not the point of worship. The point of worship is to see God's glory as He's revealed Himself. Uh, another important word there uh, is limited. Worship is instituted by the Lord. It is limited by his own revealed will. If God has created worship, if it's his idea, if he is the holy and infinite one, uh, then he has the right to tell us what we ought to do in worship. And he does that in his revealed will, in his word, in the scriptures. And The last one is prescribed. Uh, we are not free to worship God in any other way, not prescribed In the Holy Scripture, this is an exclusionary clause. Anything God has not told us to do in worship is forbidden. Now, uh, there are some hairs to split uh, when we start to use some of this language. Uh, And that's why I've given you uh, at the the top of this handout uh, this really helpful little diagram, because when we talk about the regulative principle, in theory, it's very simple. In theory, it's very simple. What God has commanded in the Scriptures, that is what we do in worship. What God has not commanded in the Scriptures, we do not do in worship. Uh, and this diagram comes uh, from G.I. Williamson's study guide on the confession of faith, which is really helpful. Uh, and he divides uh, between view A or view B, or what are normally called the regulative principle of worship or the normative principle of worship. You can see view A there. Uh, is exactly what we're talking about here. There are two categories. There's true worship and there's false worship. And those are divided between what is commanded and then everything outside of what is commanded. That includes things that God expressly forbids and also things that God simply doesn't talk about. Uh, should you light your prayer journal on fire? The Bible doesn't speak about that. It might talk about false offerings, and maybe we could find a category for that. Uh, but there are lots of things that, that people may want to do in worship that Scripture simply doesn't mention. Uh, And so what are we to do about these things? So the regulative principle has basically two categories. Is it commanded or is it not commanded? Is it true or is it false? Now the normative principle, uh, and you'll find this largely in Lutheran churches, Anglican churches, some other high church uh, traditions, and and probably many others, uh, and encroaching into Presbyterianism, uh, sort of two and a half categories. There is what God has expressly commanded, And then there is what God has expressly forbidden, and those are respectively true and false worship. But then there's all that other stuff, stuff that you might like to do in worship that makes you feel good, like, uh, you know, this trend that happens in youth groups and churches where, uh, as part of the worship service, you take out a a note card and you write your sins uh, on that note card. And at the front of the church, there's a wooden cross, and you nail that sin to the cross, and it's a symbol of what Christ has done to take these things. Is that a symbol that Scripture speaks of? Well, it certainly speaks of our sin being laid on Christ, and on the cross he put aside the ordinances and the commandments that were against us, but is that a symbol and a ritual that God has commanded? Well, no, it's not. So is it worship or is it idolatry, and how do we decide between the two? So, uh, as I mentioned, in theory it's very simple. Again, Terry Johnson says uh, basically what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to read the Bible uh, and pray the Bible and preach the Bible and sing the Bible and see the Bible. The things that the Bible tells us to do and to observe in worship, those are the things we ought to be involved in, and anything outside of that is uh, not something we ought to be uh, involved in. Um, Calvin says it this way. Uh, And that doesn't mean that Calvin is the be-all, end-all. But one of the uh, the criticisms of the the regulative principle sometimes, uh, because the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a very strident uh, example of the regulative principle, was put together by Puritans. Uh, And Puritans are not normally very uh, popular uh, nowadays. And so people will say, you know, those Puritans, they were all stuffy and legalistic. If you go back far enough, Calvin, he didn't, uh, he didn't believe in a regular principle like this. Uh, he, was, he was more loose, and we ought to be more loose like Calvin uh, and not more strict and legalistic like the Puritans. Here's what Calvin said. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in his word. Does that sound strident or does that sound loose? It sounds pretty strident. Uh, and so this is larger than just uh, Presbyterianism out of the Westminster Confession. You can find it. Uh, in the Savoy Declaration of Faith and uh, oh, what is it? Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order that's a Congregationalist creed. Uh, you can find it in the uh, London and Philadelphia Baptist Confession uh, which actually is a verbatim quote of the Westminster. Uh, you can find it in the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find it all over uh, historic uh, Reformed and, and, and like-minded uh, Christianity. And so it's, it's Uh, really very pervasive. Um, So we've we've spoken a little bit about what the regulative principle is. Uh, We need to discuss also what the regulative principle is not. And here's where we get into this criticism that it's really uh, strict and legalistic. Um, Some people would say that the regulative principle is uh, impossible uh, to follow consistently. Because if we start going only by what Scripture commands, well, then that gets really, really narrow, doesn't it? And why aren't we meeting together in a temple that is laid out with the exact proportions of the original temple or a tabernacle or one of these things that God has expressly commanded? Why don't we have uh, a menorah at the front and a table with bread of presents and all of these other things? And, and uh, people start to say, well, if you're going to go regular principle, you ought to go the whole way. Uh, you want to, uh, to be really strict if you're going to be strict at all, otherwise it doesn't really fit. Um, you know Things like, uh, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about singing from a hymn book. In fact, it, it talks about singing uh, with joy in your heart, and it, and it talks about uh, being filled uh, with, with song. And, and it doesn't talk about opening a hymn book and singing together, so let's get rid of those. Uh, and it says nothing about electric lights, and all these, it, it, gets, it gets really pedantic uh, at a certain level, uh, and you can think of a whole host of things. Uh, here's a popular one, uh, that if you go all the way with the regulative principle, you can't administer the Lord's Supper to women. Scripture doesn't tell us to do that. We find no examples, no explicit examples uh, of the Lord's Supper being administered to women. Uh, we seem to, to find a lot of disciples, and I, I don't agree with that. I, I see it a strange eyeball look there from Tim. But I don't agree with that, but that's one of the, the arguments that's made, that if you're going to go a little bit, you, you've got to go all the way. Uh, but believing that the Bible regulates worship doesn't mean uh, that you think that the Bible lays out some specific liturgy and some blueprint for what all of our worship services have to look like. And here's how we, we know that. Um, I didn't give it to you, but we know that based on how we read Scripture. What do we understand about how Scripture informs what we're supposed to do? Do we only read literalistically in every instance, or do we understand the way that Scripture works with Scripture, the way that there are principles and there are things that uh, that we are supposed to put together systematically as we think through these things? There Are things that we deduce? Are there things that have no actual religious worshipful significance, but are just things that we have to decide? And and that's what, what opens this up a little bit. Uh, Westminster Confession chapter 1, which talks about Scripture, uh, speaks to this issue. Uh, It says in, in two different sections here, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time ought to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So what's it saying? Well, worship includes the directions of Scripture, but that doesn't mean that uh, when we come and uh, we have, for example, I pray before and after I preach. I have no uh, proof text to lay out uh, that, you know, Romans chapter 17 says that you ought to pray before and after the sermon. Uh, but that is sort of a working out, a deduction of God's command that we ought to be constant in prayer. It's a working out of our understanding that without the Spirit's power to illumine our understanding of, of God's Word, our hearts are all hard, and our ears are deaf, and our eyes are closed, and so we pause, and we ask the Lord to give us illumination before we look at His Word, and we pause to ask the Lord to apply that Word to our hearts. That's something that we deduce from Scripture, and it's not a proof text somewhere. Uh, but it's something that, that we work out of what we understand from Scripture. Here's what it says again in Westminster Confession 1. It says, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So there's that second principle. There are simply some things that we have to decide. We've got to meet somewhere, folks. Uh, Does it matter where we meet and what color the walls are? Well, no, that's not really all that significant. Uh, But that's different than should we plaster the walls of the place that we meet with icons and images? That's religiously significant. Uh, Those are two separate things. And what time will we meet for worship? And will we sing out of hymn books? Will we project it up on the wall? Will we uh, do all sorts of other things so that we can sing together with one voice before the Lord? Uh, Those are just sort of Christian prudence issues. And so uh, typically when we're talking about regulative principle, we distinguish between three separate things. We distinguish between the elements of worship. We distinguish between the forms of worship. And we distinguish between the circumstances of worship. What are the elements? Well, those are the pieces of worship that ought to be present. Uh, You can find... um, On your handout, it's the last section, uh, and it starts to enumerate some of those elements. Now, I didn't give you the whole thing. I printed this off this morning, and the last line goes on to the next page of our Trinity Hymnals. Uh, But you can find it, and it starts to to give us some of these elements. The reading of scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching, conscionable hearing of the word, and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, The due administration, worthy receiving of sacraments, it starts to tell us what are some of the elements. It goes on to talk about vows and oaths and thanksgivings and fastings. Those are all good parts of worship. Sometimes, some of those ought to be in every worship service. Some uh, show up here and there from time to time. Uh, But those are the elements, the the pieces. Now, we also talk about forms. Those are the different ways that those elements show up. Just by uh, a guess, uh, how many prayers do we pray together in our corporate worship services? Anybody want to guess? Mike's doing a mental tally. I had to. I had to count up how many there were. (coughs) Excuse me? Nine. A typical worship service has nine. uh, And they look different, don't they? Sometimes there's one person standing at the front of the church, uh, not a pastor, very often, who is reading a prayer that they have composed, and we are praying a prayer of adoration together with that person. Is that real prayer? Absolutely. Sometimes there's a pastor standing in front and praying for the needs of the congregation, and it's, it's guided by Scripture, but it's largely extemporaneous. Is that real prayer? Sure. Thank you. Sometimes we're all here together praying silently, confessing our sins. Is that real prayer? Yes. That's all the same element the element of prayer in worship, but it shows up in lots of different forms, and so this is the way that we distinguish some of these things, uh, that the that same element will show up in different ways. <coughs> there is, uh, I think there's a good and necessary consequence we can deduce from Scripture that says we ought to, uh, we ought to be called into worship, uh, and we ought to hear an assurance of pardon, and we ought to be called to confession, and we ought to read God's word, but All of those are really different different forms of the reading of God's Word. They show up in different places. They have different functions, but it's all hearing God's Word and worship. Now, the last is circumstances, and we talked a little bit about that. Uh, And so that's a little bit just about what regular principle is. Uh, It's the fact that God has determined how we ought to worship. He's limited that, uh, and he prescribes the way we ought to worship. And sometimes it shows up in elements, forms, circumstances, and those can be different. Before we move on, before we start to look at some of the individual scriptures and we start to prove, in a sense, uh, that this is coming from God's Word. Any questions or thoughts, any pushbacks? Uh, have you is this new to anyone, or are you sort of still wrapping your mind around this, or is this totally old hat? For the nine? Nope. Nope. It's a circumstance. It's something that that this fits uh, where we are. These are all good things I think that we ought to do. We ought to be. Uh, praying and confessing our sin. Uh, I think we need prayer for the illumination of the Spirit. I think it's good to recognize before the table that it's the Spirit who works. And so, yeah, there, there are circumstances, and they fit in there. But could we, theoretically, could we put all that into one big, long, extended prayer in the beginning or the end? Yeah. Yeah, we could, theoretically. There are several um, postures of prayer uh, in Scripture. Um, Most normally, people would stand to pray, actually, uh, in Scripture. Very often, if they're in the presence of the Lord, they would fall on their faces. Uh, And here again is an an issue where this is uh, a different form. Uh, Is it wrong for you to kneel in prayer in worship? Nope. In a lot of hardline Presbyterian churches they don't like that sort of thing because they think that it's a little bit Roman Catholic Uh, but is it wrong no it's not wrong now what would be wrong is if you came into worship and we were to tell you true prayer only happens when you're kneeling and so here are the kneelers and when we pray you have to get down on your knees that's wrong Uh, because then we are putting our own understanding of these things can true prayer happen on your knees sure uh, but are we to prescribe for you uh, certain postures, certain gestures that you have to do in worship? No. That would be idolatry. Uh, that would be us uh, using the imaginations of men to say, this is what you must do. Yeah. Sure. The danger there is that lying down on your pillow, you end up falling asleep before bed, right? Uh, I, that's what happens to me. Rob. Of course yeah 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 Yeah, that's a good one okay so we're we're clear on the regulative principle let's move forward into beginning to prove the regulative principle and we're just going to look at a few scriptures together uh, and uh, and come away seeing this hopefully this is so my goal for the rest of our classes is that we're going to start going through some of the different elements of worship uh, and what we ought to be doing in worship uh, we're going to have a class on the ministry of the word. We're going to have a class on the ministry of prayer. We're going to have a word on the ministry of praise. We're going to have a class on, on the ministry of the sacraments and, and uh, a few other things. And so this is all laying the groundwork for what we're going to discuss in the coming weeks. Uh, but let's look together in um, first Genesis 4. First, let's look together in Genesis 4. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for that clarification. No, there's not a first Genesis and second Genesis. Uh, Yes, I think so. Uh, First, we will look together. My words aren't working today, folks. You're going to have to bear with me. It's going to be even worse when I preach later. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. Can I get somebody to read uh, verses 3 through 7, please? Jay, thank you. Thank you. I think we might have looked at this two weeks ago uh, in passing, uh, but this is the first time that uh, a worshipful act shows up uh, in the Bible an explicit sacrifice, a, a, a ritualistic worship showing up in the Bible. And here's a sticky wicket, uh, because we often come to this passage and we say, well, we're not entirely sure why uh, one offering was accepted and the other offering was not. And maybe it has to do with the attitude of the heart. Well, that certainly is an element of true worship, isn't it? And where your heart is and what's going on. And and was it uh, that Cain, being a a tiller of the field, and Abel being a keeper of flocks, was it that, you know, Cain did what was easiest and he took some of what he had on hand? Uh, Or is there something about the actual offering itself that is wrong? Uh, I think a case can be made for the latter, uh, take a look at, at um, what it says there uh, in, uh, in the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. There are two things there. He didn't regard Cain, and he didn't regard his offering. Now, it could be that he didn't regard his offering because he didn't regard Cain could be that his offering was false because his heart was in the wrong place. Uh, But what does the Lord tell him to do when he shows up? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? There seems to be some element that what he's doing is offering the wrong thing, not the thing that the Lord has commanded. Now, we know that before Genesis 4, we have no explicit command as to blood sacrifice. The Lord will institute that later, uh, but we don't see that explicitly yet. We might be able to infer it in the the animals that were slain to cover over the sin uh, of Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden. Is that where you're going to raise, Rob? Good, thank you. Um, And so we might be able to infer it, and maybe that's what the Lord has uh, in mind, uh, but we probably don't have the whole story. But it seems that the Lord comes and he says, look, what's wrong is what you have offered. And you've offered the wrong thing, Uh, maybe because your heart is in the wrong place. In Hebrews, it says, By faith, Abel offered a better offering than Cain. It says in, uh, oh, where is it? Uh, It's the next page. That's where it is. It says in 1 John chapter 3, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why did the Lord have no regard for Cain and his offering? It seems that he wasn't doing what the Lord required. He did instead something that he decided would be good. Here's the best of my, my fruits of my field, and so I'll bring this. And we might even imagine Cain saying, hey, this is good. This is what I've worked over. And Abel's going to bring what he's worked over, and I'm going to bring what I've worked over, and that'll be an offering and pleasing to the Lord. And, and won't the Lord think that I have been good? And he doesn't. He doesn't bring what the Lord has commanded and required. Now, granted, we're inferring a little bit here, but I think a good case can be made for that. Uh, How about, you don't have to turn there, but you can just think of them. Hopefully you're aware of them. The first four commandments. Here we have uh, the table of the law, God's moral commands for his people for all time, generally divided into two sections, our requirement toward God and our requirements toward man. The first four dealing with how we are to interact with God. And through and through, they are talking about worship, folks. The first two very explicitly, and the fourth one very explicitly, and I think the third as well. So what's the first one? I'm the Lord your God. You ought to have no other gods before me. That is, who will you worship? Will you worship me, or will you worship someone else? Rob? No, no, no. In his presence. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there will be no other worship uh, where I am with my people. And by the way, where God is, is everywhere. Right. Uh, and so no idols. Uh, idolatry is wrong. It's false worship wherever it shows up. Uh, it's not just wrong to bring idols into the temple and defile it, uh, as was done by the Greeks between the Old and the New Testament. It's wrong to have idols anywhere. Uh, and uh, then the second one. Uh, you shall have no graven images. Don't use pictures and images and idols to aid in your worship of me. That was the problem with the golden calf, as we saw last time. What about the third commandment? Don't take my name in vain. How are we supposed to use the Lord's name? Okay. Okay. Uh I would interpret that as, uh, and we might split hairs here, um, whatever we do, and I think it's the same idea, maybe from different directions, we ought always to be reverent with the Lord's name. Uh, what, is it, what is it that will keep you from misquoting the Lord and saying, thus says the Lord, when he hasn't thus said? Well, it's the heart of worship. It's reverence. It's the fear of God, which is, which is the true heart of worship. Yeah. And so he says, I want you to regard me as holy. Don't take my name in vain, uh, but regard me as holy. And then the fourth commandment, there ought to be a whole day, he says. In the Old Testament, it's the seventh day. In the New Testament, we'll make a case later from 1 Corinthians today, it's the first day, a whole day set aside for the worship of the Lord. And God cares about how we worship. And and then uh, Bill raised Nadab and Abihu. It says in Leviticus chapter 10, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, the King James, I think, is a little bit better in that verse 3. It says, uh, I will be regarded as holy. Those who come near me, I will be regarded as holy. Uh, Sanctified, it's the same idea. Uh, But what's the problem with Nadab and Abihu? Well, it's this strange fire. It's this unauthorized fire. And again, it's the sort of thing that you can imagine Nadab and Abihu going in and saying, won't the Lord be pleased? We're going to burn some incense. It's going to be great we're going to get the warm tinglies, so and we're going to feel like we're doing the right thing we're kind of before the lord and we're going to do something like what he has required but not exactly what he's required but you know there ought to be a, a breadth of expression uh, where's uh, where's artistic license uh, in worship and let's offer this strange fire and won't god be pleased And no he's not and he consumes them and he says well, what's wrong here what well, they're not treating me as holy They're not regarding what I have commanded in worship. Instead, they're worshiping the imaginations of their own hearts. They're going after what the Puritans would have called will-worship. When We're not worshiping the true God, but we're worshiping whatever our wills devise. Here's what I want to do in worship. Let me do that. And we're not actually worshiping the Lord. We're worshiping ourselves. It's a worship of self when we do that. And that's what Nadab and Abihu did. How about the warnings in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy. Turn with me, if you've got your Bibles open, to Deuteronomy chapter 12. I don't know why I'm turning there. I've already got it on my page in front of me. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Somebody read for me verses 29 through 32, please. Anybody got it? So, is the Lord speaking about one specific act of false worship, or is this a blanket statement? He mentions one in particular. He, he pulls one out as particularly egregious, uh, sacrificing children, and Ezekiel would say, my children. God says to the people, you've burned my children in the fire. Uh, sacrificing children in the fire to Baal and Molech and all the false gods. But there is a blanket statement here, isn't there? Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. Now, here's a little clue. If you folks want to understand the prophets when you read them, study Deuteronomy. Uh, almost without fail, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the minors, uh, are echoing a lot of the themes of Deuteronomy and the curses that the Lord put on his people, uh, that if you come into the land and you do these things, I'm going to take you from the land. and I'm going to bring judgment against you. And we hear a lot of the echoes of the Old Testament Pentateuch and the Old Testament prophets. Here's what Jeremiah says uh, in chapter 32. Uh, he says they set up their, this is a, a judgment against Uh, against his people, they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. What's the Lord saying there? They're doing all these terrible things, and this wasn't something uh, that I had commanded them. In fact, it wasn't even something that, that I even dreamed up, in a sense. God says it didn't even enter into my mind. They're following the imaginations of their heart. They're, they're not only uh, saying, oh, okay, well, we can worship God in the way that he's prescribed. Uh, we can also add these other things. Now, the Bible's very clear about uh, not uh, giving up children to the fire and not worshiping false gods. But here we have the Lord saying, look, false worship includes those things that Uh, we might sometimes look at and say, well, God hasn't mentioned this. He doesn't care about that. He didn't talk about high places in Deuteronomy. Uh, He didn't talk about Asherah poles, and so let's have a totem pole. That'll be great. Yeah, maybe we can worship the Lord that way. And God says, no, 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 this didn't enter into my mind. And we can think of others. God's rejection of Saul. Uh, And what does Samuel say to Saul? Uh, Obedience is better than sacrifice. And here again, we have salt. Won't it be great? We'll keep some of the livestock so that we can offer a sacrifice, and won't God be pleased? No, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We can find it in the New Testament. We've spoken about Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, Then there's Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. You hypocrites, and we quoted this last week, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What was the fault of their worship? Not that they were worshiping Baal and Asherah and Molech and and all the other false gods, but they were taking God's worship and they were adding to it. Well, here are the other things you have to do. The, The context of that is when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why don't you and your disciples wash your hands? How about when you come into the church, why don't you genuflect and dash yourself with holy water? Why aren't you kneeling at the appropriate times? Why aren't you doing the right things when we say you ought to be doing the right things? In vain do these people worship me because they're teaching as commandments of God the doctrines of men. They're adding will worship and and saying, well, we will tell you uh, how you ought to worship. And uh, so long as God hasn't expressly commanded it or commanded against it, we can fill in the gaps, can't we? That's what the Lord is speaking to the Pharisees about. We could go on and we could look at Colossians uh, chapter 2. Uh, he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. He goes on later to speak of these things which seem outwardly to be really helpful in, in religious circumstances, but they have no substance to them. It's vain, it's false worship, it's idolatry. Uh, and we, we've seen already walking through Uh, Paul's teaching in Corinth where he lays out lots of things uh, that, hey, this is the way you ought to do it and nothing outside of this. Uh, Here are all these things that you want to do, but even in matters, and and you can imagine the exchange between uh, Paul and some of the people with prophetic revelation in Corinth. Paul, how dare you tell me that I can't speak? The Lord has given me this gift. I have to exercise my gift. And Paul says, well, how many people have spoken already? Well, three, that's it be quiet, sit down. This is what the Lord has required. Even if it feels good, even if it gives you the warm tinglies, this is what worship is about. Real worship is according to what the Lord has commanded. Now, like good Presbyterians, and, and this is where we're going to end, and I apologize for the, the information dump uh, for today and uh, hoping that our future classes are going to be a little more interactive. There's a lot to cover here. Uh, like good Presbyterians, we not only derive the regulative principle of worship from individual texts, like all the ones that we've just talked about. But it's also the outflow of our other doctrines, the way that our understanding of, of all of God's revelation works together. The regular principle is, is the outflow of our understanding of sola scriptura, that God's word is the only rule for faith and doctrine, that, that his word is inspired, breathed out by God, able to make us complete and perfect, prepared for every good work. Is worship a good work? Absolutely. And so God's Word has informed us how we ought to worship, and we ought to worship the way God's Word informs us. Uh, It is the outflow of our our understanding of God's relation to man. I think Brian brought it up last time. Here's this God who is infinite, and here's man who's finite. A finite man uh, with sinful, broken hearts uh, and the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? If we want to hope to worship this infinite God rightly, we ought to do what he commands us to do. That's the regulative principle. There's the doctrine of the liberty of conscience. The Lord alone is liberty of the conscience. He's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. What does that mean? It means that the church cannot tell you to worship in a way that is contrary to Scriptures. We can't command you to have a feast day. We can't command you for 40 days before Easter to give up some certain food or to stop eating meat on Fridays. That's false worship. It's will worship. It's idolatry. Uh, That's a a misunderstanding of the kind of power the church has. What power does the church have? Only to administer what the Lord has already given to his people. Uh, A lot of other things that we could talk about here, Uh, but we're going to end because we uh, we are way past. Uh, So let me pray, and uh, let us bear all these things in mind as we prepare for worship together today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us to prepare us for every good work, worship included. And we pray that you would guide us and guard our hearts as we come into your presence in just a little bit, uh, that we will worship you in spirit and in truth, Oh, may it be so, by the working and the moving of your power. uh, Within us, through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.